This podcast includes strong language, descriptions of war and deals with issues of trauma and death. You don't realise what's happened completely until you get back and all the people get together and you debrief. And that's when you realise how serious it could have been. AS-90s, the artillery, they were actually firing on us. We always took it as far as we physically could, if not further at times. If you've got somebody who's genuinely dying and there's a chance that by taking a bit of risk you get them back, we were always happy to do it. Michelle did it exactly as per the book, so cool as ice is what I remember. What is it that drives people to be brave? To commit acts of heroism, often in the face of the enemy. I'm Darren Coventry, former soldier and now video and podcast producer at BFBS. I've been talking to men and women who've received the UK's highest military honours. We talk about what happened, what they thought at the time, and how they feel about it now. This is Tea and Medals. Michelle Goodman, former RAF helicopter pilot. Um, what rank? What rank were you? A flight attendant. And recipient of the. RAF Distinguished Flying Cross, very prestigious, um, and we'll talk about that in a bit. Yeah. Uh, the most important question, how do you take your brew? No sugars. White, no sugars. Yeah. Everyone's and pretty. no coffee, I don't drink, I don't. Oh, I can't, I can't drink coffee, I also can't drink tea that's been stirred with the same spoon that someone... Oh, it's coffee. <laughs> yeah, if someone makes one. <laughs> and people test me. Just to see if you notice. But I definitely notice every time. <laughs> in 2007... Michelle Goodman was flying Merlin helicopters in Iraq as part of Operation Telic. Michelle joined the RAF in 2000 after being fascinated with aircraft from an early age. I think I was about six and my mum and dad took me to my first air show. And basically, I was there and the Vulcan came over. It's just so imposing. From then... That's all I wanted to do. And my parents were amazing because there were no women at that time at all doing it. Yet I never knew. They never said, oh, well, you're, you know, you might not be able to do it or anything. They really supported me and that's what, you know, made me get through. And to be able to have your dream job is very rare, I think. So what was RAF pilot selection and training like for you? I had a great time. It was, it was quite hard. It was over three days. You get interviews, you do your aptitude tests, and then you do hangar exercises as well, which are just they're great fun. And, and were you straight into that from, from uni, or were you, you know, had, had, you, had you been involved in any flying before? No, so from university. Hmm. So I did aerospace engineering yeah. to keep me on that sort of path as well. But it's quite long hours, you know, doing 35 hours a week plus other. And I didn't have the time to do the, the extra, yeah so I kind of wanted to concentrate on degree get a yeah. good degree and then concentrate on you know applying and being a pilot yeah and what I mean what was selection like then uh, I don't know when they started to allow women to to fly but yeah uh, was it around that time or had it, had it been going for a while um Joe Salter she was the first jet female pilot and that she got combat ready in 95 Okay. So, which is just when I was leaving to go to university yeah. as well. So, so it's pretty new. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. After her initial pilot training, Michelle was selected to train on fast jets. First, learning to fly the Takano, 
but it wasn't meant to be. So I went in and flew the Jacano, um, and I, did, I wasn't many trips before the end, and I ended up getting chopped. And actually, all I'd ever wanted to do was to fly jets, but I was really quite happy that I'd been, I don't think it was for me, right. really. And the bottom, my but you boss, got a chance to fly some anyway, so yes, so yeah. So we took a lot of hours on that, the yeah. And I put down multi-engined that I'd, I'd right. like to go to. And my instructor was ex Puma, so he's like, right, come on, let's go. And he was, told me all the stories about helicopters and everything like that. And I was meant to be seeing the station commander the next day, and so I went and I said to him, "Can I change to helicopters, please?" Because it just sounded absolutely brilliant all the work that they did mm. and when I got to Shawbury to do the first to do the squirrel for the first two squadrons that was just I loved it absolutely loved it and, and what made it sound you know what made you think actually that's more appealing than flying fixed wings then just because you're more in the thick of it Michelle completed her basic and advanced helicopter training and then joined 28 squadron at RAF Benson to fly the Merlin in 2005, she deployed on her first of four operational detachments to Iraq. It takes two to fly a helicopter like a Merlin. One pilot, who's the captain, and a co-pilot. My name's George Williams. I'm uh, formerly of the Air Force, now obviously changed to the Navy. Back at the time, I was about midway through in my career. I was working with 28 Squadron on B flight uh, with Michelle. And in the end, I ended up doing 18 years in the military. Uh, ending up as a test pilot down at Boscombe Down. At that time, I'd done, I think it was my fifth tour in Iraq, and plus one in Bosnia, and all my tours in Iraq, I'd been an aircraft commander, so I'd, already, I'd been the captain. But the way it worked is when we had lots of experienced people, we'd team up for half of the tour with one particular crew, and then we'd go for the second half of the tour with another particular crew. And if we were both captains, we'd do day and day about. So I'd done a tour with Michelle in the end of... Uh, 2006, and on that particular tour, we did day in, day about. So one day it would be Michelle, next day it would be me, and so on and so forth. But on the tour in question, actually, it was just a random day and the whole of the tour in between where we swapped crews and just happened that me and Michelle ended up in the same crew and I happened to be the co-pilot that day and she was the captain that day. So what's the co-pilot's responsibilities? What's their job day to day? Obviously, the, the captain of the aircraft on any particular day could choose to either be the captain in left-hand seat and so managing the aircraft was main, the main job of the uh, co-pilot. So managing the safety systems, managing the defensive systems, doing the navigation and then the handling pilot in the other seat was the one who drove the aircraft but the commander of the aircraft could be either one. And in the back of the aircraft were two more essential members of the crew, Sergeant Steve Thomas and... Chris Parker, I was a weapons system operator in the RAF for 12 years, which predominantly was on the Merlin helicopter, based down at RAF Benson on 28 Squadron, which I spent most of my short career on, apart from a bit of time up at Shawbury. I was on the squadron during 2006 to about 2013, so uh, six tours of Iraq, three of Afghan over that period of time. So um, crewman is always a hard thing to explain because... There's a variety of different jobs that are included in the role, but ultimately you've got two pilots that are flying the aircraft. With the bigger frontline aircraft, you've got up to 40 seats on a Chinook 24 and a Merlin. So a crewman is responsible for the cabin operations effectively on the aircraft. So a normal day would be, uh, let's say you've got some kind of uh, exercise or tasking to support, it would be to come in, check the aircraft, make sure the roll equipment's available and prepped correctly, make sure you can do the job for the day based on performance, fuel, work with the pilots to plan the sortie or the exercise, prep the cab before the pilots get there, whether that's nav kit or 
roll equipment you're taking. And then once you get on the exercise or the task, it's um, supporting the pilots, whether that's backing up on navigation, radios, and then having a good understanding of what you can and can't do in the cabin, whether that's dangerous goods, picking up unslung loads. We fly into uh, quite confined areas, so we the eyes for the pilot from sort of the 3 o'clock to the 6 o'clock, and we, we have a certain language we use to help direct to get into known as voice marshalling. So it's a combination of different crew support to aid the pilots to get us the job done and to allow us to land in tight spots, picking up unslung loads where they can't see where we're going to uh, and then just supporting the crew as a whole, really. And are you also manning weapons? Yeah, so front, so operationally we'd have uh, GPMGs or um, up to many guns on the Chinook, 50 cows in certain states. We do a little bit of training on that, so... Um, it's a defensive weapon mainly for us, but um, we'd have three on the Merlin, two out of either door and then one on the ramp. So, yeah, manning weapons, eyes out, and then dealing with the troops on the ground as well. We tend to be the communication for the aircraft to the troops, mainly because we're stood there. Oh, and with comm systems. Yeah, yeah, or, or just uh, the old-fashioned shouting, which works quite well with the army. Chris having a dig at the army there, but I'm amazed we got this far without any mention of hotels. Let's talk now about the Merlin helicopter. So the Merlin started out uh, back when I joined the Air Force. It had just been brought in. It was streets ahead in terms of technology than the Chinook or the Puma that were the normal mainstay. Um, For a start, the whole front of it was glass cockpit, so it was all screens. It had three engines. It could lift three tonnes of freight cargo people. And if you fully loaded it with fuel, it could go for three hours in a straight line. So it was very capable going into Iraq. Obviously, that made it nibbled at the edges of its abilities because flying in the heat was not but it moved about 16 24 people depending on what the weather was like or a lot of freight or you could put a land rover underneath um but it was so advanced in terms of technology it was the best defended aircraft that we had in terms of defensive aid kit and the avionics were streets ahead of anything else that was out there but flying somewhere hot and dusty like iraq can have a different set of challenges you haven't got as much um, power as you would do back here. And that's, that's the thing, as much as you practice over here, you're never going to simulate that side of it. All the dust, you're not going to be able to really simulate that over here. And that can be where it's quite difficult to do dust landings, you know, overshoot from dust landings. Uh, yeah, it can be quite a tricky environment out there. Flight Lieutenants Michelle Goodman and George Williams and Sergeants Chris Parker and Steve Thomas, also known as Tomo, formed an IRT, an incident response team. The IRT out in Iraq uh, was called the IRT. It's, it's, it's been called other things, Mert and other things since. But it was immediate response. Essentially, we went on for a 24-hour duty. And at the start of the duty, we'd do a brief, get ourselves all ready. And then we were on notice to move to be airborne as fast as we possibly could, day and night, all the way through. And we'd just go and do whatever we needed to do. Invariably, you had a some form of emergency trained doctor, whether that's a GP or a consultant, or it could sometimes be someone who'd worked in A and E recently. There'd be at least a nurse and a paramedic, and then probably an Air Force medic as well. Um, and then you'd have a four to six man force protection team as well. On the Merlin, it had um, fluid hooks in the roof, and we had um, certainly certain storage kit, which made it quite a suitable aircraft because you could put the uh, casualties down the middle and then that gave them a nice working area but um, we were on certainly in Iraq probably six minutes notice to move in that we would all sit in the same place all kitted up and then as soon as the call came in 
straight out to the aircraft. We normally started in three to four minutes and then gone. And it was a straight line as fast as you could. But obviously the primary thing that we're there for is to go and pick people up when they've been injured. So we were basically the air ambulance, combat air ambulance that was out there. And we'd go and pick up anybody who needed to be picked up. And I think that's what we did on this particular occasion into town. I think the important thing for me was it was the one job that we all were very proud to do and also it was the one job that we all did without any whinging whatsoever. Every every serviceman likes a good whinge, but it was the one thing that we all did with absolute privilege, really. And we also took the levels of risk to the much further than we would for anything else. If there was a certain minor emergency on the aircraft or something that wasn't quite right, we always took it as far as we physically could, if not further at times, because it was genuinely worthwhile as opposed to... It, it might be just to try and glean some intelligence or, you know, if, you're, if you've got somebody who's genuinely dying and there's a chance that by taking a bit of risk you're getting back, we were all always happy to do it. By the summer of 2007, Michelle was on her third tour of Iraq and the IRT were being kept busy in the city of Basra, where the insurgency was well underway. Yeah, so it was in the period of considerable fighting because the Mahdi army were in full swing at that stage. Um, there was a lot of toing and froing. There was a lot of uh, kinetic action inside the town. I believe the British army pulled out fairly soon after that, that summer of high activity. Uh, so it was a lot more active than it had been on other tours and one since. Yeah, it was quite intense. We had a threat against helicopters, effectively, that they'd put out. And then the constant rocketing of the base as well. Was, it was very wearing on people. Yeah, So, um, and then the insurgency was in full swing. That's, yeah, yeah, in and, 2007 it was, yeah, and, it was and kicking the, off, yeah. Um, and the threat against the helicopters was specific because they were looking for spectacular targets yeah. and obviously a helicopter is would be a big deal if they yes. managed to get one. Yeah, because I mean you can have I know, 20 people on board and yeah. it's a big lot of life to lose. On the night of the 1st of June 2007, the team got a shout to go to an incident in Basra where a British soldier had been badly injured. Someone knocked on Michelle's door. I'd just gone to bed. Mm. Um, So George um, and uh, Chris, they went down to the ops room. So with the medics, because the medics want to find out, you know, what the injuries are and and whether they need the doctor to come. And uh, because the base was still under attack, it wasn't overly coming, all the information. So Tommy and I had gone to us at the aircraft and then they came back and then we got the information over the radio. We used to sit in a little sort of uh, port cabin that was just round from the ops and it had one of those swingy doors on it. And I just remember the door bursting open. I'm pretty sure that's where we were. Um, and just said that we had um, a T1 in town. A T1 always used to, whether it's right or wrong, used to speed things up dramatically because you knew exactly what you are going to. There were four different categories of casualty. T1, T2, T3 and T4. T1 meant the casualty required urgent care immediately or they could die. It was then became apparent to me that we were going somewhere that we had never been before. And based on the intelligence, at the time was um, under siege, effectively. So not too concerned about the under siege bit of that, but the fact that we didn't know the landing site very well and we're going in at night, which obviously has its own considerations as well. So that was a case of trying to get as much detail as we can. Uh, confirm the grid, 
believe it or not, because that's often a mistake. People are shouting numbers quickly, so make sure that that's exactly where you want us to go. And then we ran straight to the cab. And I think Michelle and I had a chat that this was potentially going to be a, um, a dodgy one, for want of a better term, because it's somewhere we hadn't been before, and we knew from the intelligence that it was a pretty serious contact still in progress. We'd mount up, taxi out very fast, and then we'd be straight off into town and briefing on the way. So effectively, Michelle would have got from me, right, it's here, it's at this grid, it's in the kit, go. So you're in the air, how high are you flying? Uh, as low as we can go with sense, because obviously too low and you clip everybody's aerials and things on top of the roof. Um, but we would have been 50 feet above any of the buildings on the way over. Because obviously, if we're at that height, someone sees us, by the time they've thought AK-47, pulled out their AK-47 or RPG, we're already past their house and gone. Uh, that was the standard tactic for that particular environment. Probably changed now. Um, but yeah, so we'd be at rooftop height going in. There were 11 people all together in the aircraft. Up front, Michelle and her co-pilot George. Chris and Tomo in the back, along with the medics and four force protection guys, who are there to defend the medics on the ground. They were on their way to the PJCC, a small British base in downtown Basra. That particular location wasn't somewhere we normally ever went. We didn't normally do any uh, normal runs there. We'd go to Basra Palace or um, Shatal Arab Hotel. We wouldn't normally go there, uh, and we were coming in. And generally what happens out in those bases is they end up using the helicopter landing site as a parking lot. So when armoured vehicles go in, it churns up the ground, and then other vehicles would go in and churn up the ground. And that layer of dust just built up and built up and built up, and it was like a big layer of talcum powder all over it. Finding it was not that easy either. So I remember we, we were trying to identify it early because the last thing you want to do is start circling trying to find it so I think George spotted it it was a if you imagine a uh, sort of a barrack block almost with a big opening in the area so it, it was almost like a little castle if you like there was definitely small arms contact going on at that point although it's not as easy to see under MVD um, if you're not looking at it because although the tracer stands up perfectly you can't see stuff ricocheting as well as you can on the day so um the links that was top covering us hadn't quite arrived at that point, I don't think, either. So we were coming in relatively blind to the area, to an area that we didn't know, but we're fairly sure we got right. We got to about 50 feet, and it was ridiculously dusty. A few things went through my head. If we overshot, there were lots of light stanchions and everything around. So you've just got to be careful, because sometimes you'd be better going down than going up and, and catching anything on the way. But also, the enemy know you've just landed in there. And they've seen where you went. Exactly. So they're going to know exactly where you're going and they're going to be ready for you. But not only that, the dust cloud, that it can stay around for a long, long time. So you'd be waiting to go back in when the dust had sort of cleared. And we knew that he didn't have that long to live. So we had to continue. And, and that's your, you know, that's your, your decision point. It's, you know, commit or... Yes. Go, go around in a, in a, in a, and wait in a and long wait. roundabout way yeah. and actually probably increase the threat to your aircraft yeah. by going around yeah. as well as the casualty. Yeah. Um, and you decide, we're committed, we're going in, yeah. but we can't see anything. But uh, So Tomo, he was our number one crewman, he hung out underneath, you know, with his head down because the last bit 
that goes is right under the aircraft, so you've still got like a bit of a hole that you can see the ground. Um, but also with our instruments at the front, as long as you don't move and you've got a steady, you can run on at the end slightly. And uh, we totally browned out. Um, couldn't see anything. Uh, at this point, I was on the ramp just trying to make sure the tail doesn't hit anything uh, and also keeping a lookout on both sides of the disc. Um, and at that point, between Steve, Thomas and Michelle, um, they landed in a 30-foot dust cloud. I'm not entirely sure how it happened, but it did. <laughs> um, probably a little bit of close your eyes and hope for the best, but we were committed at that point because we were inside the, within the building walls. We had to get down. Um, there was, you used to get The pilot might get a small reference just on the front right, where there used to be what was known as a donut. So I don't know if you use that, but we landed um, fairly abruptly, um, thankfully, because at that point I couldn't see anything where we were going. So we'd been working together, speaking pretty much constantly all the way down so that we both knew that we were in the game. Because if one person stops talking, they're probably overloaded and they've probably lost it. So we'd keep the talk constant all the way down and then put ourselves down in the middle. And as soon as that happens, guys in the back drop the ramp, outshoot the medics, outshoot the protection team, and they'd have gone and met the casualty. And then for us in the front, suddenly we're a spare part. We're just sat there waiting. At this point, it was a massive flash out the back of the tail, um, which I then called as a car bomb. I just assumed it was, a, it was such a big explosion and it was outside the other side of the wall. I just assumed it was a car bomb that had gone off. And then we're starting to calculate, starting to catch up with the radio that we've kind of tuned out. Um, and I remember one particular bit about that radio tune out is we started to catch up with some of the traffic that was coming in and they were talking about artillery fire, friendly artillery fire. And it used to be called Blue Rain. And they could say there was Blue Rain coming in and they give it a, there was a grid system over the town. And so I was trying to catch up with that, bringing out my Blue Rain map, having a look at it. And I sort of said, did he just say Alpha 6 or whatever it was? And Michelle sort of goes, yeah, Alpha 6. And I went, that's us. So medics went straight off with the doctor. Uh, about five seconds later, there was another massive flash, at which point I think I said, I can't believe it was two car bombs. There's something going off. Um, unbeknown to us at that point as well, we were getting mortared. And so we knew it was that kinetic in the firefight that was going around us. They were dropping shells effectively inside the same grid square we were in. So, and Michelle was like, we're not moving. We're staying here. You know, this is probably the one place we where they're not going to be dropping the shell. And I'm like, it's the same grid square as us. But cool as ice just said, nope, we're sitting here until we've got the medics and we've got the patient. That's what we've come for. We're staying here. So at this point, after the third flash had gone off, the guys appeared at the ramp with the casualty who was being carried in a body bag at the time that was being used as a stretcher. The casualty was 19-year-old rifleman Stephen Vores. His entire chest was risen as he was fitting, so he was having a huge convulsion, almost arching his entire back. Um, and I could see as he came onto the ramp that he was very, very poorly. Um, the doctors got straight to work with him, the doctor and the nurse. Uh, at that point, the troop commander on the ground uh, with me had a bit of confusion because he was trying to take the force detection lads off me because uh, I don't think they had an awful lot of guys there at the moment. I was trying to get him back on, so I moved him out of the way and said, we're keeping them, got them back onto the aircraft, ramp went up. Um, at that point, uh, it was a case of me getting up as quickly as I can so we could get away. And then lifted and departed. We were definitely 
taken some form of contact as we departed. Um, at that point, not really. There was no way I was firing because we had we were leaving a an area that our troops were in, and I couldn't see any firing points. So at that point, it would have been I'd be more likely to kill them than any enemy. Just get out of there as quick as possible. It was very evident once we got above sort of the safe height that this lad was in a very very poorly state. Um, doctors and nurses were doing were moving quicker than normal I'd say um, but I wouldn't say certainly not panicked they were incredibly professional but they were working at a fair pace um, you could see that he was uh, they were putting all sorts of uh, lines into him at the time and at that stage for me um, I'm pretty sure it was me then that was uh, radioing ahead to the, um, to the hospital to give them a missed report just to let them know that we got him and that what his injuries were if I remember rightly he had a um pretty uh, traumatic injury to his head um, and certainly shrapnel damage if off the top of my memory um, having been hit by a mortar round I think um, it was very evident though to me he was certainly one of the poorliest troops that we'd had at the ramp for a long time and it's hard for the crewmen because I mean they get to see everything you know I've had some guys on the back after having to hold the soldier's hand or can be quite stressful for them as well because they actually f- see it and they become part of it. Whereas at the front, you're kind of sheltered because you, you're not looking back. You're looking to get that person to hospital as soon as possible. Um, and I guess um, you, know, you take off. T- tell us what happens when you, when you take off. Oh, so we lifted and I elected to put our defensive aids on early because when you lift, you're, kind of, you're a, bit, a bit vulnerable. Uh, anyway, so... The, the, the flares went off. I can't remember how, how high we were. Probably only about 50 sort of odd feet. All the flares went off. And um, I spoke to the brigadier, who was the, the new brigadier out there. They'd only just got here. And he said, he said it was like um, an American film where they thought that they had shot us down with one of the artillery rockets because it, obviously it flashed. So the camera just saw a massive flash. And he said, then suddenly they saw us come out and they were like all high-fiving. <laughs> they said, oh, everybody went quiet. It's like thinking that they'd lost us. Because of the noise of the aircraft and because you've got decent helmets on, a lot of the time you'll feel the explosions rather than hear them. Um, it sounds strange, but there's so much noise, it clatters everything else out, so you'll often feel the vibration. But um, uh, at the time, for me, it was, it was not... The difficulty for me was I wasn't sure what was happening. I didn't know why there was these huge flashes, because it didn't look like tracer, it didn't look like uh, mortar rounds, which we'd seen before. It was something I hadn't seen. So straight back to Nightingale, or whatever it was called back then, and landed on, and he was met by the gurney, by the, the hospital team, who went took him straight in. And I'm led to believe the whole thing was 14 minutes, so... Um, it all happened after that very, very quickly. And the weird thing about that is you then taxi back in, shut down, walk in and sit down and put Sky News on and sit and make yourself a cup of tea. That was normal business, really. So I was still a smoker back then, so sat outside and have a cigarette, just try and calm down from what's happened. You don't realise what's happened completely until you get back and all the people get together and you debrief. And that's when you realise... So you aren't quite aware of how serious it could have been. And they were actually firing AS-90s, the artillery, on the position that that, that they'd been firing on at us. And we all sort of, oh, this is novel. We've been shot at by our own side now. Uh, They weren't obviously shooting at us, but realising that there's 
155 millimeter shells landing all around us, being guided by our own side, was certainly the most interesting point of the sortie, thinking about how we're going to manage that as we came round. We subsequently found out it was um, a show of force by the AS-90 battery commander, which was not brilliant timing at, at the time. And I think our Lynx top cover pilot was pretty sure he was going to have a chat with the battery commander when we landed, which he did on the phone. As Chris says, everything you just heard, from takeoff to delivering the casualty back to the field hospital, took just 14 minutes. That kind of turnaround means some quick decision-making. She was unflappable that day, so she'd have been quite within the rights to have gone, that's too hot, we're not going anywhere near there, because it was a light show with all the tracer and all the, the weapons and the explosions and everything, and it probably would have turned other people away, but she was having none of it. Just carried on straight into the site and was even where we were going, are you sure? Are you sure about this? A bit nervous about it? Not one bit. It was just like the whole, when the going got hot, it, it all just, she put a damper on it and was totally focused as she went in. And I'm not sure I would have been the same if I'd have been over. So I'm quite happy she was the captain that day because she had to cope with that. All I had to do was press a button. If one of us had said, really, we shouldn't be doing this, we all knew that we could have said that, but we didn't. She said she was happy, and I don't recall how it went, but she would have made sure that we were all on the same song sheet before we went into that base, and she would have convinced us that that was the right thing to do. But we all knew if we, we'd have a, a vote if we were unhappy about it. The, the one thing about IRT, I guess, was that we were always a matters of our own destiny as air crew on a helicopter. So if we didn't need to go and we didn't want to go somewhere, we didn't. Or if we didn't want to do something that we thought was unsafe, we didn't. It was beyond the call. So um, the, the base had said that it was up to us if we wanted to go in or not, because we just had to assess the situation. Um, and, and that's because they knew that there's... It was still under attack and everything, yeah. yeah. So I think it was all leaning towards, let's go. And then by the time we're in the, over the middle of the city and the firefight's going on, there is a point where you can go, no, that's too hot, and we come away. But that's not how we're wired. We hadn't been selected and trained and to go and run away from something until it was obvious that we'd been hit or anything. That might have been different. But in this occasion, our experience at that point had been, we can do this, so go forward. But she could have quite legitimately said no and gone, this is too hot, we can't do this. But she didn't. I never think about it. She did what she did. I might have done something different and it might not have come out so well. We had a lot of shouts while we were out there. Yeah. Um, to the point where the Lynx crew, I can't remember which crew it was, just were like, oh, God, we're flying with you. <laughs> they knew something was going to happen. <laughs> oh, so you were unlucky. <laughs> yeah. Unlucky or not, her actions had impressed somebody. 15 months later, she found out she was to be awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. I thought it was spot on. I thought that was one of those days where you come back and go, glad we got out of that, glad that wasn't me making those decisions. So I was happy for it. It's difficult because it's the first Merlin one as well, but it's, it is hard because only you get it. Yeah. And, every, you know, you've got the engineers, the medics, your crew, the regiment guys, you know, everyone's been there, everyone's been in danger. And, you know, they're very brave to let someone have control of their life, you know what I mean? Mm. For me, if it was just me, I would do 
more than... Because you haven't got to think about everyone. Yeah, but you've got... That's the thing, you've got to think about everyone else. And it was a joint decision to go in, the crew. Um, if they hadn't been happy, you know, then we were, we were going to look anyway. We're going to have a look and see what yeah. we could do. But, yeah, it's, it's more than just you making decisions at that time, I think. Yeah, but, you know, it's your aircraft and it is your decision to make. Yeah. And you, I guess you made the decision. I know you, can, you consulted everyone. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, the way you flew and the, the decision you made was recognised as being yeah. significantly, you know, above the yeah. call of duty or I don't know, I'm not sure what the yeah. what the uh, distinguished flying yeah. cross criteria is, but it's definitely, you know, they don't just give them out, do they? No. And I'm very proud to have been awarded it. Um, you know, I got to meet the Queen, I got to go to number 10, you know, I got all of these things. But what's quite hard is all of that has come out of, um, basically, I'm not saying a kid, but he was in his teens and he's, net, you know, he's always going to have to be looked after yeah. for the rest of his life. So it's, 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 it's quite difficult because yeah. the only reason I got that is because he's, he's in, in you know, it's, it's quite, it's heartbreaking, especially when I went to see him. It's very heartbreaking. 19-year-old Stephen Vores was serving with four rifles. He'd been injured by a mortar round, which had left him with a brain injury. His arrival in the back of the Merlin was something that Chris Parker will never forget. The guy coming up the back of the ramp, 100% that's the... Um, seeing his body um, convulsing, was that, that was the most vivid part for me out of all of it. Ironically, not the car bomb or the or getting back or anything like that. I just remember, I can still still remember that now. And I don't know why in particular, because trauma was uh, something we, we were involved with, certainly in 2007, fairly regularly. But it was just the first time I'd ever seen almost a human body fighting to survive, as opposed to... Um, you'd see a lot of you see a lot of incidences with, with, as I say, with amputations and things that are the kind of stuff you see on TV. But that one particular, he was... Because I think he was only young as well, probably about 19, something like that. And... Um, you could see that he was just trying to stay alive. That's how it came across to me. We got a letter from um, Stephen's family. And you have, you have met Stephen. When did you go yeah, and see so Stephen? I think, it was about, I think it was about a year afterwards, okay. I think. Um, was he still in hospital at that time? Yeah, so he was at Hadley Court. OK. Do you mind if I read it? No, no, no. Dear Michelle, thank you once again for bringing our son home safely to us. Since you last saw him, he has made some great progress. He's walked around part of Bushy Park for Walking Home for Christmas, which is a charity. He is speaking much more and is making good progress with eating and drinking. He is now living near family at the Royal Star and Garter and taking full part in the social life of his home where he's very popular. He is also acting as a Bakir coach and introduced this to other residents of the Royal Star and Garter following completion of his sports leadership course. Importantly, he has never lost his wicked sense of humour and works hard every day to move himself forward against his challenging goals. We are very grateful to the bravery and commitment of you and your crew and all the other service personnel who worked so hard to get him back safely to the UK and for all the special moments since that we have had together as a family. Unfortunately, Covid has limited what Stephen can do at the moment, but he has plans to be a keynote speaker at a dinner for a rifles charity. Perhaps, once we're able to replan, you would like to come and see him in action. 
Very best wishes, Jessica and David. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? Oh, that's amazing. So Stephen's obviously yeah. very improved um, in his condition. and yeah, It's phenomenal. So you were the first woman to be awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. How does that affect uh, the award and, and what you do now? Um, well, certainly after it happened and the award came through, um, I did quite a few. I went to cadets, did a few talks, um, and also some schools as well, because it's, it's letting women know that it's a possibility. You know, they, they can do it if that's what they want. And there's always going to be a smaller number of women in, in things like pilot journey, because you have to be a certain size, you know, if you're not. And I think I'm the, the smallest height you can be. So there's, it, it, there's not necessarily going to be the same. But it's just saying that, you know, that it's out there. It's a great job. And I've never had, you know, the whole, any, anything with where I've been treated differently because I'm a girl, anything like that. And it's just letting them know that and not be afraid to, you know, come forward and, and decide they want to do that. Like all medal recipients, Michelle was invited to Buckingham Palace to receive her DFC. I was the last one to go on with the Queen. OK. I have no idea. Apparently my mum said I was up there for quite a while. I have no <laughs> idea. No idea what I said. Um, but yeah, that was pretty, that was pretty special. Yeah. You know, and then we went for drinks. And in fact, we, <laughs> my mum, my dad, we were the last people out of the palace. We were almost escorted off the premises because <laughs> we were just drinking, like, fizz and gin. Right. And my family were waiting for us back at the RAF club who, who to came, have lunch. Who came with you to the ceremony? So my ex um, at the time and then my mum and dad. OK, yeah. so you have a smaller bit of the ceremony, but then you have a Yeah, you have two, so you have three guests, club. yeah. It's not far to walk. No, it wasn't too bad. No, in fact, they picked us up, I think, oh, really? actually, yeah. Um, and then I put loads of money behind the bar and stuff when we got back and got the, you know, and had to get the engineers and everything over as well. So, yeah, so it was really good. It was, it was, it was very good. Um, I've got a few things I'd like to, to show you. If you want to press, press play there, and uh, I guess you can see what they say about you. So she never lost focus, really. She did it exactly as per the book. So cool as ice is what I remember. So she did everything. It did, didn't get excited about anything. It was all done exactly as per the book as we lifted out of the site, transitioned out through the cloud, calling out what we needed to do, where we're going, calling out where she saw threats. Certainly no extraneous chat as we were going out. It was all about, we've got to get this guy from here to there as fast as we possibly can without being taken out on the way. I've obviously seen and been around a lot of jobs that had got DFCs. I'd also um, been on quite a few shouts myself. I would say that that was the worst. It was certainly in the top five shouts that I ever did. So, And I think um, obviously it, was, it became known by people because she was the first female. But to me, that, was, that took away a little bit of the uh, importance of the award because actually she didn't get it because she was a female. She got it because she earned it at the time on the, you know, during the job. The fact that she was the first female meant it became newsworthy, but I will always defend that it was as worthy of a DFC as any other award in the last 10 years, because it to me it was, as I say, the worst one that I'd been on, definitely. Oh, bless him. <laughs> He's a really nice guy, isn't he? He's a top guy, yeah. yeah. And I guess what's significant about that is that Chris is probably very experienced, and, you know, to have the... Um, 
flown with lots of other people. Yeah. And lots of other incidents, you know, is in his top five, which means he's, he's, been in a, he's been in a lot. Yes. You know, a mark of what he thinks of how yeah. he flew that day. I was lucky. All three of the guys were brilliant. Yeah, and we didn't get to meet Tomo, but um, um, if he's anything like Chris. Oh, Tomo's not really. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we're done. Do you miss flying, Michelle? Yeah. <laughs> Every day. And they've been flying over our house of Chinooks, but every time I see it, I'm like, hmm. You know, because I'm doing some kind of mundane job, like, oh, that's it, like, strimming. I'm like, oh, I could be doing that. <laughs> no. An extract from Flight Lieutenant Goodman's citation reads, Without the IRT, the casualty would have died within 15 minutes. Despite extreme pressure, whilst in the face of the enemy, she made the right decision. This was a bold and daring sortie, which undoubtedly saved life. Tea and Medals by BFBS Creative is presented by Darren Coventry. You can find out more about this episode at forces.net slash tea and medals. Tell us what you think. Email us at podcasts at bfbs.com. Tea and Medals is written and produced by Josella Waldron and Simon Thornton. Edited by Andy Prada with sound design by Mark Pittam. Original music by Will Farmer. Our executive producer is Alex Griffiths with thanks to Michelle Goodman, DFC, George Williams and Chris Parker. My poor husband's been looking after my sausage dogs. What could possibly have gone wrong? (laughs) The fastest, sleekest, coolest and most famous aircraft in the world now coming together with a group of absolute geeks. When I saw it for the first time, I was like, wow. In a brand new BFBS podcast. Somebody once said to me, don't work on an aircraft that doesn't have a toilet. Self-confessed aviation geeks Alex Gill and Ginny Carlin. It's like someone started drawing one aircraft, meet pilots. Aircrew. And ground crew. And then ends up <laughs> finishing with another. <laughs> and share their endless passion for planes. They are the Mav Geeks. Mav Geeks. Taking off with a new episode every Tuesday at bfbs.com slash podcast. Or wherever you get your podcasts.